If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hi guys, this is Dr. Scott. Welcome to LA Not So Confidential. I'm here with Dr. Shiloh. Hello, it's been a long time. I know. Holidays. Sorry. Yeah, sorry <laughs> to make you wait. We got a lot of emails um, saying that we were making you wait too long, so we apologize. We're really excited today. Really excited because we have our not only a really special guest, but we have our first guest and in interview for LA Not So Confidential. Um, uh, a writer who is going to help us uh, delve even deeper into uh, the Netflix series Mindhunters, Mindhunter, uh, that we talked about in our last episode. And so we want to introduce um, Jennifer Haley. Jennifer Haley is an award-winning playwright and television writer whose work delves into ethics and virtual reality and the impact of technology on our human relationships, identity, and desire. Her award-winning play, The Nether, premiered with Center Theatre Group in Los Angeles and has been produced off-Broadway on London's West End, across the U.S. and internationally. Jennifer wrote on season two of the Netflix original series, Hemlock Grove, which is based on the novel of the same name. Uh, Jen is currently a writer, or was a season, last season, first season writer and co-producer on the acclaimed Netflix series, Mindhunter, starring Jonathan Groff and Holt McCallany. Mindhunter is an American crime drama web television series created by Joe Penhall based on the true crime book Mindhunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit, written by John E. Douglas and Mark Allshaker. Mindhunter is set in 1977, during a period when the FBI worked towards quantifying the process of criminal profiling and its intersection with criminal psychology. Mindhunter revolves around FBI agents Holden Ford and Bill Tench, along with psychologist Wendy Carr, who interviewed imprisoned serial killers with the intent to understand their peculiar thinking processes and thereby apply this knowledge to solving ongoing cases. So we are really excited to welcome Jen. Jen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be your first guest. Oh, cool. It's yeah. very exciting. It is really exciting. <laughs> we So we kind of alluded at the end of our last episode that we were going to have something exciting coming up, hopefully related to Mindhunter. Um, and we were just really excited to do that episode to look at it. Um, I sort of came into college and reading John Douglas's books and it really sparked my interest in criminal justice and then psychology. Um, but we of course just like gushed about the series because it came out so well so we are so happy and a very different vibe than the book you know the characters of of holden and bill are yes. are, are quite different than than john and and robert who really right started it right and the book you know the tone of the the mind hunter the book is quite different than you know where the where the tv show ended up but so were, were you directed to be part of that movement of, of changing the tone or no that was all done by david and Ch and joe okay so at what point did you become involved in the project how did that so they developed the show for about three years 
uh, from what I understand, the origin story is that Charlize Theron bought the rights to the book and then went to David, and who, of course, was excited by the subject matter, and they, they worked with a couple of writers before they settled on Joe, and then Joe and David developed it together for about three years. And Joe was set to write, uh, there were going to be ten episodes, he was writing seven, and three of them they were farming out to, uh, as freelance episodes, to writers. So this was about two and a half years ago, Joe had seen my play The Nether in London, which has a lot of interrogation scenes. Mm -hmm. Basically, half the play takes place in an interrogation room, which I think is why he was like, hmm, let's, um, let's talk to this gal about writing one of our episodes. <laughs> right, but let's, let's also be really... Uh, the Nether is, is challenging. It's uh, For those of you who aren't familiar with it, I just read it recently. Please go to Amazon immediately and purchase it. Jen's get it not, on Kindle. Please get it, yeah, it right get now. it on Kindle. You need <laughs> to read it directly it. from Sam French. Okay, oh, you okay. get it from Sam French. It's challenging and fantastic, and um, and hopefully we're going to be able to get Jen back in a future episode because I think we could talk yeah. for another hour and a half just about that particular subject. But I'm not going to get right, on that right, right now. Right. Okay. So, and I think our audience will really they'll get it yeah it. yeah they'll get it <laughs> <laughs> definitely yeah well definitely dark subject matter and i yeah. think that's what that's what got me hired as well so sure. they hired me to write episode five as a freelance episode mm -hmm. and at that point joe shared with me um the first three episodes and, and a bible he'd worked up um and then we skyped a lot and and i and, and worked on an outline together for five and then i wrote put that episode through a couple of drafts this was back in 2015 and then kind of waited to see if the if the series would get made. But I remember at the time, I had written on Hemlock Grove, which was a, a great way for me to break into television as a playwright because I learned so much. But it was, you know, it was a teen, teen wolf and vampire mm -hmm. and that sort of subject matter because I don't think I could have come on to Mindhunter without having written on a television program before because it's, as you can probably tell from watching it, it's very complex and I was really daunted uh, by the project but Joe was great to work with and I just really got into the characters and I read the book, I read it over a weekend and, sure. and I was moving, I mean the book moves and it's just so fascinating and, and then suddenly at the end of the weekend I think it was two chapters from the end is when I started feeling sick you know, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, and it I had that in. feeling, yes yes, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. so building on what you just said, so you you, you knock out the book in a weekend mm -hmm. you have the series bible mm -hmm. and you're assigned the episode how much license then are you given i mean what's your process of of merging all this disparate information about what's expected i mean you're building well, dialogue how building dialogue just by trying to imagine what these what these people would actually i mean for for Holden and Bill, I had a template because uh, Joe had written these previous episodes. So thinking about the difference in their voices, that was somewhat, and, and the conflicts between them, that was somewhat established. But, and I'd never done this before, I, was, I wrote episode five, which is uh, a case based on a true crime, uh, where this brother and brother-in-law... Um, I, we can do spoilers here, yeah. right? We're oh, assuming yeah. that we, people we, have, have, have seen the series. That was their assignment. <laughs> they were supposed to go and watch the entire series them. before listening, so it's your responsibility, folks. But well, yeah. I actually have an interesting um, factoid for you in that the true crime actually involved two brothers. 
and the legal department, because those, one of the brothers was never charged and actually went to a psychiatric hospital, legally we could not use that exact story. Oh. So it was changed to a brother and a brother-in-law. And I was, right. I was kind of sad to lose that, that element because it was two brothers and a sister. It was basically a family yes. affair, it changed, Yeah, that changes a lot. And by the way, again, we were mentioning this before we went on air, incredible casting. Incredible casting, not only of the lead characters, but of that particular scene. Mm -hmm. That kid, I'm blanking on his name, but he was the lead in the adaptation of Augustin Burroughs' Running with Scissors. And he was... Was he the guy that played uh, 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 Benjamin? The younger Meek. The Meek one, the husband. Yes. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Such a great choice for that. And, And your directors all have been really great and orchestrating wonderful performances out of the actors. And that episode was directed, episodes five and six were directed by Tobias Lindholm, who's a wonderful uh, Scandinavian writer-director. One of his movies was A War, Mm -hmm. which was uh, really great. And he was was a fantastic director and also a a great writer. Well, so... I guess piggybacking on um, just bringing John Douglas's book to life. Oh, so something you had asked me is about is about how do you how do you write this based on because it's uh, this particular crime was a couple of paragraphs in the book, and what you can find online is basically one old brief article, and this was the case uh, like for Monty Russell, for example, there was not a lot of background information. Um, but for this case in particular, there was there were just a few, there were a couple of articles and two paragraphs in the book. So then it became a matter of, as a dramatist, how do you find the different voices for these characters? But obviously, one character was kind of the 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 weak lean of the right. bunch, and the other character was the more the more aggressive brother. Well, which is totally a a concept in the work that we do when you're working with dual pairs of murder. I mean, that has happened throughout serial killer history where there's a dominant personality that really takes the more passive or secondary individual in that relationship, takes them in directions that they never would have gone without that push because they are so passive Mm -hmm. and they are so pliable. So that I thought that that was really... That was really painted well in that episode. That's interesting to me because I did not know that that's actually a pattern. Right. I mean, some of the things we studied involved multiple involved a couple of guys working together, but mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that was a an ongoing thing. I found the case really fascinating to delve into, and then the and then the how the the presentation of the crime and the victim and how the victim was victimized and the question of well, would the you know, you, in the episode, you watch them try to figure out, or it's that one, or episode six, you watch them try to figure out if the killer raped her before killing her, then it's very odd that he would also mutilate her right. because the the act of rape itself is the is the show of power and the and the, the dominance over the victim. Exactly. So. So what does this all mean, and how does it fit with figuring out these two suspects? of them? Yes. Sure. Sure. And then. With the sister involved, or sister-in-law involved, it's a whole other dynamic. Yes. And she was really good, too. Yeah, yeah she was, that actress was wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, remind us, which episodes did you write on? So, altogether? I wrote on episode five. That was my freelance episode I wrote back in 2015. Okay. And then just kind of waited and hoped that the series would go into production. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I got 
paid to write that episode, but I was not going to be able to share that episode with anyone. Everything was kept, you know, quite secret until production. And I wouldn't get credit on that episode if that didn't air. And David had a couple of other big projects lined up. So it was kind of this waiting game to see whether, whether and when wow. the show yeah. was going to come up. If and when. If and when. And then very suddenly both of those projects fell through. Uh, one after the other, and suddenly Mindhunter um, came in the first position, and they were going into production in Pittsburgh, and they brought me on to, they filmed out of order, so they filmed episodes one, two, and then they moved on to episodes seven, eight, nine, and ten, and then went back to three, four, five, and six, and partly that's David's wanting the episodes to reflect the seasons that they were actually uh, being That that reflects back to what we said in the episode. We talked about how, and I'm married to a production designer, and so he has taught me over the years, you know, things that I would never have noticed, but there's real um, grimy beauty in the way that this is filmed. I mean, it looks like the period. There's almost this sort of amber, yellow cigarette smoke haze over so many of the shots in the way it's lit. And, you know, I think, and he even, as we're watching it, he goes, I could tell they picked picked Pittsburgh because it's one of the few towns that's left that has so many buildings and exteriors that are from that time period Mm -hmm. that you can still work with. And it's great job. Yes. And it kind of amazed me as, uh, because on Hemlock Grove, I went to set for about five days. I was a junior writer and, and here I was, I was actually writing so much. So I jumped in and started and started doing rewrites for seven, eight, nine, and 10 because those as one and two were being filmed, those were coming up. And, um, what amazed me, I, I finally kind of like absorbed what it is to do a period piece because every time they did an exterior, they would have to round up all the modern cars, get them out mm-hmm. of there, and bring in all these 70 cars, <laughs> 70s cars. They yeah. had a car yeah. wrangler, they had to redo the outside of the buildings. And, and, and like I said, this is my second job in television. I hadn't worked much on set. So just to see the kind of, um, for instance, there was one scene, that scene set in the grocery store. I believe it's in episode 9 or 10. When they were walking with, with the cart and just throwing. And Debbie. Yeah. yeah. So that scene, which is two minutes long, the production folks were just like crazed in terms of getting getting that scene ready. I mean, we're talking about a month and a half, and they were they everyone was talking about how to pull that scene off because every product on the shelves had to be seventies. Yeah, talk to my guy. He got it. He understood when he he watched it. he, He was shaking his head, going, "That is so fucking hard." Because every label, I mean, if you are going to use something that actually exists, you have to go clear it through legal. And then you've got to look and see yes. what the logo was 35 years ago. And in fact, I think some Uber nerd already posted online. No. Okay. So I'm going to give our friend Didi at your work a shout out right now. Yes. Her son saw a jar of something and was like, nope. Because they're all East Coast. <laughs> they're all East Coast. Was it coffee or something? It was something. It's some like spaghetti sauce or something. Yes. I'm like, I don't even know what that is, Didi. I'm, I'm from Southern California. Didi, yeah, Didi's son caught it. That was it, I thought. We love you, Didi. Um, but yeah, that's a lot of work. In fact, like the stores, malls, like they're, uh, please don't write a store or mall. They always say that. <laughs> right. But, but, it's a, but it's great because it's stimuli and they, you know, they're such good actors. They also use 
they use their environment really well in that scene. Well, and so much is set in these prisons and interrogation mm-hmm. rooms, these long talking scenes that, you know, I think you do need to spice it up every once in a while. Yeah, sure, sure. Something that's moving and out in the world. So when did you find out that it actually did get picked up? So in in twenty the spring of 2016 is when that all happened very quickly. It got picked up and they started production in May. Mm-hmm. And I was out there by July working on the episodes uh, in Pittsburgh. So oh, it was very okay. fast. It was very yes. fast. And it was exciting. I was so glad that the series was actually moving forward because I was even writing episode five in that, that freelance episode. I, I could already tell what an amazing show this was going to be. So it was thrilling to have it actually like I go bet. through and happen. Yeah. So in your rewrites or your bump ups of the, the then episodes that came later, did you get to, cause I know Shiloh has some questions about Anna Torv's character. I mean, we're both fascinated with that because they, they changed it from the book. A yes. good big, I think she was, did she was a psychiatric nurse, She's a psychiatric yeah. nurse. And they made her a psychologist in in the um, series. And I thought she captured a lot of stuff beautifully. I mean, I just... She really did. Yeah. She really gave that character... that She really gave that character depth because mm-hmm. uh, both the male characters were, were were very much there, but I feel like Wendy's character was kind of a character that was still... We were still talking a lot about and developing, and I think she really, like... Uh, she just dropped in and kind of mm-hmm. also helped figure out who that character is. Yeah, she could have very easily just been this dry academic kind of background character that's guiding them and what they're doing. Yes. Much yes. deeper. Than and that. it's so timely now. I mean, you know, here we are in late November of 2017 and the, there is a, an underlying vibration of people waking up to what women have experienced for millennia of, of sexual oppression and sexual assault and, and just having to go with, the male-dominated choices that are made throughout our existence. And I, I, I found that really interesting to see her struggling as a woman, as an intelligent woman, and being trying to be respected. You know, And not only that, there's a layer of her trying to be respected as a woman. And then also something that we experience a lot in our work, we work with law enforcement and wonderful law enforcement that are intelligent and incredibly insightful in their own way um, that I really value. But there is a distrust of academia For sure. at times. Yes. And we, we talk about it all the time. Right. Yeah. And I think that you guys really captured that beautifully. And Joe, uh, Ann Burgess is not a lesbian, but the character of Wendy Carr is a lesbian. Right. And when we were talking to people in the FBI, uh, definitely in the 70s, that was not something you let on to mm-hmm. if you were gay. You did not no. tell people. And I, I feel... I began to look at Wendy as kind of a, a voice from the future because she's an academic and because she's studying issues of, of, of gender and psychology sure. and she's sexuality uh, and sexuality that she, in fact, the, the scene where she's chastising them for the way they interviewed Brutus and uses I the shoe and, uh, accuses them of basically resorting to this locker room, mentality in order to to try to bully him to because their talk manhood to them. was challenged yes yeah. yes yeah. so that that scene was directly informed by well she she's beginning to know what we know now and it right. is foreign 
territory to these two (laughs) male FBI agents. They do not know what she is talking about. Right. Right. And and also at this time, Holden's narcissism uh is starting to develop. You know, I mean, he's a, you know, he's a likable character, but he's really getting full of himself Mm -hmm. now. And, and it is exemplifying here was this sort of beta male who now is, you know, becoming exactly what you don't want. Right. And she's, she's having to hold boundary for, you know, harder and harder. It was a really hard scene when she has to rat on them. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, I look at that and I think, you know, I, I can relate to having to make those kind of decisions at times because Mm we, we're held by a, uh, a body of ethics and mm-hmm. our training and our licensure that informs. And this was a taxpayer study by this point, yeah. so right. anyone, the records would be open, anyone could look at their methodology, and it's not scientific methodology right. to try to figure out how to trigger people psychologically mm-hmm. to get them to talk. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think that was um, a concept that was so subtly done when they were interviewing Brudos. And looking at what we call countertransference, you know, there's something in this patient that triggers us, and it's getting under our skin for whatever reason is in our history or our experiences. And that was such a perfect scene where Holt is just getting irritated or tense. <laughs> the character's just getting so irritated with it and being mean. Um, and then later, you know, I thought that's so neat. They kind of did that subtly, and then for her to come back and call him out on it, like you said, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, you interviewed him this way, it was not successful for our purposes. And then just because your manhood was challenged by this fetish he has, and also for him purpose. at that point to go, well, I got what I want, right? It's like <laughs> you—that's that's an interesting character arc because it you is. wouldn't have said that three episodes ago, mm-hmm. you know, right. you would have been a little bit more sensitive right. with the influence of your girlfriend, opening you up to the influence of philosophy and gender studies and, and sociological influences in the environment, mm-hmm. you know, and he just, I love that he just kind of non-missionary off. sex. Right. No, what a concept. <laughs> right. What a concept. Yeah. The whole, the whole shoe, that scene with the shoe was fantastic where he is allowing himself to go there and then just completely shuts down. You know, and she had. Did you did you write her comeback line? Because that was genius. Which was the comeback line when he told her this? This this just isn't you. And she goes, Yeah, that's kind of the point. <laughs> I forget. I might not. It's have. been a long time. We were going to say it's Jen's line, right? Do, and it was it's genius. I, yeah, I, I, for yeah. so many reasons. Episode seven is my favorite. So just to recap for listeners, that's when Brudos is in, um, introduced, and then. The concepts both, I think, for Holden and Tench is their work coming home with them in two different ways. So with Debbie in the sense that she's dressing up for him and the shoes, <laughs> the shoes play a main part. Um, but then for Tench and his wife in the horrible way that, you know, the babysitter and his son find that crime scene photo. Well, and that was Holt's idea. Yeah. That, that sequence wow. got written in Pittsburgh because Holt, Holt came in and he was like, what if, what if my son finds one of the crime scene photos? And then we used that as we had a conversation about so Nancy and, mm-hmm. and I will say my idea was to have them come home and the babysitters actually mm-hmm. found it so mm-hmm. that we get that we get that voice of the of the innocent who has sure. who has found this item. Right. And that whole line of Bill and Nancy that ends up with the 
with the with the emotional thing in his office where mm-hmm. he finally is telling her, you know, this is what I do and this is what I can't, right. why I can't tell you. That all came out from, from Holt wow. giving, giving us this idea, which I thought was a fantastic, we all agreed, it's just a great, it's so dramatic, it's so well, perfect it, for the show. It hits a nail on the head with what so many law enforcement officers deal with in, you know, trying to protect their family from things that they do. Um, whether and, it's, and you not, know, it doesn't have to be this that. extreme, it could be just, I don't want to talk about this, you know, dead body that I saw today or this terrible car accident or this kid that got abused, you know, just regular patrol cop stuff, not even elite FBI stuff. But they don't realize that that shuts off the process of continuing evolving intimacy with the oh, partner. I'm sure. You know, that, and that's where, I mean, as a, I'm a former law enforcement psychologist, she's a current one and we, we would counsel Mm-hmm. You know, couples and law, you know, and oh, and oh my God, you think it's bad with just a guy when it's a, a husband and wife that are both, both. law enforcement. <laughs> wow. That's some, that's some hard ass couples therapy. Let me tell you, wow. that is difficult stuff. My husband and I are both law enforcement. What are you trying to say? Uh, ooh, this is really awkward, Shiloh. <laughs> Back on topic. <laughs> you, you both are highly evolved. I know. I and know. your husband scares the crap out of me. <laughs> he is, her husband has the most intense cop stare. I've seen him use it on people. I'm like, please, please don't flay the flay don't the flesh from my bones with that stare. <laughs> Uh, I'm wondering just to what extent was John Douglas involved in your yeah. piece of, you know, writing or input or were you, were you just kind of gathering info? He was not. He okay. was not around. I think once they bought the rights to the book, that was, that was, then they okay. went off and, Interesting. and, so and did the show. Yeah. Is there, once you turn the rights over, mm-hmm. if you're not a writer, then... Um, and I'm not sure if he's had an official response to the show or anything like that. Really? I, haven't seen, oh. I haven't seen anything about I, it. I, I read a, a, a snapshot of you know a title that said he hated Silence of the Lambs, but he loved Mindhunter. <laughs> oh, wait. I take it back. You know what? I think I read that, too. So yes. I, I didn't read the entire article. But yes, I think he felt synopsis. like Silence of the Lambs was, you know, it was kind of, uh, it was... It was kind of silly and yeah, glorified. Yeah, and yeah. yes. And Mindhunter was more because I think I mean John Douglas at the time he was into the they were all into the the specifics the minutia the the categorization of this mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. So well, the, really quantifying every bit of it, which I th- is, is incredibly valuable. I mean, there's a there's a, a phenomenal couples therapist um, named John Gottman. And he has an entire institute. I mean, he has an entire method for couples therapy. And his lab up in the Pacific Northwest watches close-up videos of couples while they're in a session charting micro-expressions. And he has quantified. I mean, he, he this guy apparently says that he can talk to a couple for less than two minutes. And he knows whether or not they're going to stay together. Just from because they're picking up micro expressions because they have laid a foundation for scientific research on quantifying these responses that people have to each other. So I love that it is fascinating and that that this author did this as well back in a time where that would have probably seemed like voodoo Mm -hmm. to a lot of people. 
and it's laid the groundwork, I think, for some incredible work. But then we also have this balance between people who do the scientific research and the people who actually put it into clinical work, right. you know, and that's an art in itself, being able to translate that from the research into the actual practice. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating mm -hmm. to me. It is. It is. Um, what about Mindhunter do you think you were drawn to as far as how did it match other genres of projects that you get involved in? Um, you talked a little bit about, obviously, them seeing your play and um, the interrogation part of it, but uh, what do you like to read or watch that kind of pulled you towards this? I, the interesting thing is that I was not native, I have, don't necessarily have a native interest in either serial killers or true crime, but when I was first working with Joe, he, he actually sent me In Cold Blood, and I had read, I realized I had read excerpts of that, but I had never read the whole thing, and when I read the whole thing, that's something that made me really excited to write about true crime. Okay. I've always felt very careful as a writer about writing about true episodes or real people. I would never want to write a biopic because I feel like how can you actually capture someone, a real person, in a piece of art? I think that's really elusive, and you can run into territory where you don't do them service but because this material you know because like for this particular crime was working from an article you know then you can kind of then you can build it out mm -hmm. and and so that's and like I said, there was something about but there's a, something about the fact that it is based in truth and something about reading in cold blood the way truman capote got to know these killers and the way that the kind of evil was actually very mundane. Banality of crime, I think, yes. is, or the, yep. the banality of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the fact that this was going to be a procedural, but that it was going to be so different from your CSI-type procedurals. Right, right. Which, when I wrote The Nether, I actually I did not start writing about crime. I started with the prompt of write what you hate, and I actually hate CSI type television procedurals mm -hmm. like SVU mm -hmm. and all that I just hate that yeah. stuff yeah. and it was a reaction against that kind of um, that kind of genre right and there's something about like pulling it um, pulling it into this much more uh, uh, taking a, a, a much broader and, and deeper look into what motivates crime and what creates ethical situations, mm -hmm. uh, creates ethical clashes that it's interesting for us to talk about. So that, that really rooted me into the show. Like the study started going around to law enforcement and somehow Hollywood found out about it. And all of the crime procedurals we watch today, like the seeds of, of those procedurals started with this practice. I, I know something they were talking about in terms of, of, of where the series is going is including that element as we watch the, the agents start to, to fly out to Los Angeles and consult oh, yeah. on, oh, on, on, on shows and movies and, mm -hmm. and kind of become famous for starting this whole and that, that's practice. So neat. I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me because this was like a 10-year project that they worked on, and I could imagine that it's going to get picked up 
you know, somewhere along the way, right. someone the, leaks The book it they or... actually, the study they actually wrote, it's called Sexual Patterns and Homicide, and it came out in the early 80s, I think 1984. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what procedurals started around that time or what was directly related to the, to the, to uh, the, yeah, what would have information been in the studies, but what was, when was like, um, I, I was know. just thinking that that title would make a great punk band. <laughs> like that, that book. Sexual Patterns and Homicide. Yeah, would that be a great punk band name? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's really neat. Anything else about the project that kind of surprised you? Either in learning the history of or just in the moment and working on it? Do you mean in terms of like the content, the psychology, or just the way everything came together? Any of that. Any of that, um, yeah. Any, anything that you learned that, you know, from research or just that came along your way while working on it? Or that you weren't expecting, like, that was one jar- of the things jarring. That, one of the things that fascinated me and one of the m- most challenging things was us having to put ourselves into, uh, into uh, basically having to unlearn the psychology that is uh, a day-to-day language for us. So, for example, in the 1970s, no one was talking about dysfunctional families. All of this, you know, people, you can see it when Bill Tench is, is reticent about sending their son to a therapist. Like, this is still considered, you know, something's wrong with you if you see a right. therapist. And so we had to be sure that the, the terminology was, mm-hmm. was correct, um, I remember I did look at the, what is the book called that has all the... The DSM. The DSM. I was trying to find examples of, of, of the DSM from that time period so that I could make sure right. that the terminology Wendy was right. using, that it was all, uh, that it was appropriate for that time period. Um, I remember us talking about the fact that she would have knowledge of the Mask of Sanity, which mm-hmm. was one of the earliest books about exactly. this. Mm-hmm. Seminal work, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And also, because you can see the agents discovering in, 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 this, in the show how important the influence of the mother is on the son. And what actually occurred to me is how Alfred Hitchcock was kind of ahead of his time with Psycho. Right. <laughs> because that was, what, the 50s? I can remember it's the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. When did Psycho come out? I think it was... Yeah, but 15. he also has some other works that predate Psycho, even. I mean, uh, Rope. And, right, but I mean, specifically having to do with the mother-son relationship. True. The mother-son yeah. relationship. Yeah. He was tapped into that even oh, before. Oh, sure. You know, that enmeshment. And, yes. yes. And blondes. <laughs> yes. Hedgecock yes. had a, a real issue with blondes. <laughs> yes. Yes, and, and, and women. And I think and we do explore this, too, in terms of what's that... There's something broken in the relationship between men and women, and how does that was actually a theme that I was very interested in that I would talk a lot about about this kind of symbiotic. It wasn't just you know obviously it's broken when the men are murdering the women, but the the broken relationship between the mother and the son and sure. the the abused women being also being unable to. I mean this is I'm sure where you guys are working from right. all the time. When there's a break in the in the in the, the parental 
when there's a break in the upbringing and right. the parental communication and, and, and how that's and forms mm-hmm. of love and yes manifesting in other relationships now mm-hmm. sure the other thing that really interested me is that they're starting to they they start touching it a little bit in the first season i think they'll get into this more later but uh um one of the people that we talked with is a was a former FBI agent in the behavioral science unit and who worked a lot with psychopaths and and she really felt like it is it's a pretty there's a genetic component but then it's fueled by it really is a combination of nature and right. nurture right and i think that's i think that's interesting too it's interesting to me that we I don't know why we have the desire to feel like it should be one or the other, to try to place it squarely one or the other, but they're, you know, like everything like else in the world. We like I know. Well, right, and it's a, it's a, I always think of it as a, a three-dimensional Venn diagram mm. of so many influences coming to bear on an individual. Working in state prison over the years that I did with a, you know, I was on a level four maximum security yard with, with a lot of these guys, and what was staggering was the number of head injuries they had all had. Sure. Wow. 90% of them had been either had the crap beaten out of them by fathers or sports injuries. They all had traumatic brain injury. Wow. You know, all hitting, you know, this part up here in the prefrontal lobe that is tied to controlling impulsivity mm. and executive function. And so you take that part of the puzzle and how it influences maybe already a genetic predisposition Mm -hmm. and then a hostile environment or you know a neglect environment Mm -hmm. yeah it's you can make one perfect storm yeah it's a perfect storm you can you can make someone if if you we horribly experimented on people you could take a child and absolutely make them into a psychopath you know it's unfortunately i think it happens without trying yeah sure yeah Sure. That's one of the when I read Sexual Patterns of Homicide, they did what Anne and Robert and, jo- and John were really trying to do was break down, you know, like what are the um, what's the IQ of these folks? What was the socioeconomic background? What was the relationship to the mother, to the father? Did they were they exposed to sexual activity at an early age? And and on and on and on the categories went and the and the you know per, they ultimately interviewed I think between like sixty and eighty um, incarcerated killers mm-hmm. and 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 mapped out the data across all of these lines. Yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting work still kind of happening that mimics that. I think the at least what I've been most tuned into in the last 10 years is the work specifically on pedophiles and looking at the high numbers of them that are left-handed and the high numbers of them that have lower than average IQs and the high numbers of them that are actually shorter in stature. These biological markers that we're starting to figure out, okay, this is something that happens in utero before birth. Wow. And, um, I'll have to come talk to you oh, once yeah. we get the next <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but I'm starting to see that, you know, or not starting, but it, well, we're there's just, just we're, this ongoing research in different areas that are just looking at these very simple things that you can just go down and tick, you know, on a on a, um, you know a list, a rubric. And mm-hmm. we're we're at a place the zeitgeist supports research of this type sure. and looking at numbers. I mean, we have like so much data, and I'm I'm really excited about what what we're going to be able to do with data if we don't get, you know 
well, I won't go into political <laughs> discussion, but you know, who knows what we'll be able to do with data in the next decades as we continue to gather, especially genetic right. data. I mean, that stuff is moving at a lightning pace mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. no one would have anticipated. Right. That's amazing. Right. Well, and in the show, there was this pushback against, I mean, the, the, the thinking at the time, they just wanted to have it black and white, like these people are evil. Right. Right. So there's a whole hurdle that the agents have to get over in terms of, can we not frame, can we get outside of the framework mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. being evil and start looking at what's actually causing this behavior well and coming back again to us liking labels Mm -hmm. and let's put this label on this person and put them away because we don't want to think about these horrible things they're doing Mm -hmm. but as scott it takes a lot of energy to think and complexity (laughs) True, (laughs) (laughs) but we we've been working with these individuals for so long that i i think it's scary to think of them as just human right and not evil because evil is the easier route to think of not what is this that you know what caused this or to have any empathy for them or understanding of their situation at least. Right. And if you have to, if you have to respect somebody that there's a spark of humanity in this people person that we want to label as evil, Mm -hmm. then how does that hold up a mirror to yourself? Mm -hmm. And people don't want to do that. Well, and that's really frightening. So beautifully in the show with them really being likable characters. Yeah, Cameron Britton as Ed Kemper was very, you know, you wanted to have dinner with him. What a discovery. What a discovery (laughs) of him in that role. Yeah. And then one of the, um, Adam Zastro played um, Jean Jean Devier in the final episode, Mm -hmm. the guy who had uh, kidnapped the Mm 15-year-old and raped her and suddenly realized, oh, I think I need to kill her because, so she doesn't tell on me. Right. But I thought he did, I loved that interrogation scene because I thought he did this wonderful, you almost felt sorry for him because he was just walking into the trap and because he was so, you know, he was definitely uh, in the disorganized killer, you know, lower intelligence and and impulse problems and naive and... And they set him set set it up perfectly where he walked into it. Right. But you're right. You're right. Yeah. It's it was just so well done. So I want to ask about Wendy and the cat. <laughs> is there a metaphor there? What is going on? Fa- I was we, Shiloh and I were texting as we were catching up on episodes, and that was one of the things that I texted her is like. I'm fascinated by this cat. I don't know if it was if it's just artistic license in the structure, right. but it is it nothing. Re- it really is it, something? Get, it makes it makes me want to connect with that character even more. So I can't I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. The cat. I was not there for. I was not there for Damn the cat. <laughs> <laughs> the cat was. Um, I was there for about three months, and and it, to. We were talking a lot about can, should we show Wendy in her apartment? We we moved her to to Quantico. You know how do we we get to see the guys in their apartments? And we're tired of just sending seeing Wendy in the office. So how do we see her? What's she doing in her apartment? Um, and at, at one point, I wrote a scene where she's talking to her girlfriend and asking after their cat. And I think there was something attractive about this idea of the cat. And then when I watched the series when it came out a year after I was uh-huh. done working on it, uh-huh. they had that. You know, wonderful sequence where she goes down and she's feeding the cat and then in the end she finds the ants so I wasn't there for those discussions in terms of, of, of what that was about but to me it had something to do with her trying to her trying to save something or save 
someone or save you know you think of a cat and it's this innocent creature Mm -hmm. and it needs help and there's something about her trying to draw that out of the darkness and and feed it and then the creepiness of it kind of just disappearing yeah and not being able to grab grasp it i think all of the all of the main characters uh, they go down this you know there's such a they're so excited in the beginning of this project as we all get excited, I think, mm-hmm. at the beginning of projects or the beginning of relationships or yep. the beginnings of things where you... And then as you get into it, no matter what, you confront complexity and you confront questions that you cannot answer. And and at the towards the end of the season, I think, is when we're all, all of the characters are hitting that moment where they're realizing there's this is not going to be easy and we're not going to have, we're not going to collect easy answers. Yeah. It was such a great contrast to her apartment in Quantico because it, you know, I'm, I'm making assumptions about her character, about Wendy's choices, but she's in this sort of mod apartment that has like the, the earth tone swoops of color across, which is totally wonderful for that time. But she doesn't do anything to personalize it. Mm-hmm. It's like it stays this sterile, blank space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's, you know, the, the, the long pauses of her standing in the kitchen and then that take her down into the laundry room that then connect her with something that's living and mm-hmm. warm, you know, which is very different from even the, the cold office in the basement at Quantico. And mm-hmm. I, I, so, it, however, they constructed that that contrast it really worked for me mm-hmm. and um i yeah, it's mean, such an example of how in just visual storytelling because yeah. there was no dialogue and very uh, you know they were able to film it very simply and just to, you know the scenes were quite short and yet they they said mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. yeah and maybe it's a pair i mean i don't know i'm just gonna do you have assume. any theories well i mean it, like you i want to build on what you were saying is that you know she she doesn't really make contact She's reaching out. She's building to try. She's trying to build a relationship with this feral animal or this lost animal. And then it's gone and there is decomposition and rot and, mm-hmm. and an, the ants. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised it wasn't maggots. Maybe that would have been too too much. Mm-hmm. But it's shocking to her. And isn't that a metaphor for what they're doing? Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, you're creating relationships with Kemper and Boutros. And, you know, we're respecting their humanity, but ultimately like there's something incredibly dark mm-hmm. and dangerous mm-hmm. as we see in the final episode really dangerous right. so i don't i don't know if that's what they intended like but that's that. how, how it worked for me yeah i like that see where we were really hoping you'd be involved in the second season so we could convince you to do a musical episode oh john McGraw, that <laughs> voice oh that voice come on everyone else is doing musical episodes you could probably <laughs> convince me i don't think you could convince david to do a musical episode <laughs> the the other thread that is just um kind of obvious that we haven't talked about yet is the btk thread that's throughout that it. That was um, added after I left as well. Okay, I think we're just really And excited. I didn't even pick up on it. Shiloh was like, don't you know who that is? It's BTK. I'm like, what? I wouldn't even even known who that was if I hadn't worked on the series. Oh, like okay. I said, I didn't know much about serial killers. I right. found so much. I mean, I mean, I found out more than I even wanted to know. But I'm yeah, sure. It, it's fascinating because, you know, um, Dexter, the first few seasons, I thought was wonderful because whether it's realistic or not, it's this idea of, you know, his father um, instigated, instilled in him a moral code that he doesn't feel, 
but he will uh, he will abide by the rules. And it kind of went off the rails in the last few seasons, but I thought it was really interesting. And but but even with that show and Criminal Minds and um, S- SVU, there's this idea that this is like this huge phenomenon. It's like oh my oh my god, don't don't, don't go to Miami. Because there's a serial killer <laughs> on every corner because that, right. that Dexter is hunting down. You know, like that's the most dangerous vacation spot in the country. <laughs> when the reality is, is that the you know the percentage of those kind of crimes is is somewhat is low. Oh, even sure. though there's a lot that we don't know, especially with women, because women tend to go. We don't have a lot of data on female serial right. killers. Well, even just if you look at numbers of psychopaths, they're one percent of the population. Right. And not every psychopath is a serial killer. So. But I what mean, does it say about? I mean, I would love your perspective. What do you think it says about us as an audience that we like this stuff is selling? Like this show is is really well done. It's popular. It's getting great reviews. And there are other shows. I mean, you don't like the procedurals, which I completely can understand. But what do you think that means about us? I think, well, I think actually procedurals work because they they give you, they do always catch the bad guy at the resolution. end. Resolution. They give you resolution. Right. Okay. They give you resolution. And in terms of crime, I think it is does have something to do with like looking at something that you, that is alien to you, that feels alien and trying to, and trying to understand like what that mindset is, what mindset you'd have to be in to actually do something like that. And I think, I mean, that's what I love about storytelling because it gives you a place to uh, kind of be curious about violence and death without actually hurting someone or being hurt. Right. So if we're, if you were going to go Jungian, it would be sort of the Jungian concept of the shadow self, Mm -hmm. that this is the way we play that out. This Mm -hmm. is the way we use our entertainment as a way of, of either acknowledging or somewhat feeding the shadow self instead of pressing it down into everything has to be main street Disneyland. Yes. Okay. Yes. So after reading John Douglas's book and then learning, I mean, we can't watch Leave It to Beaver like twenty four seven, right? Oh, It'll go crazy. Um, so after the reading pressure. his book and then, like you said, learning more about serial killers than you probably wanted to, <laughs> did you find that there was anything that you had to do, kind of for your own self care? To I don't know, you know, it, the metaphor of like feeling like I had to take a shower to like wash this off of me or, um, how have you, you... Know, I was so, I was so busy that I really got thrown in the deep down. end on this. No, I was just like, I was just fighting to get pages in on time. That was really my, my primary, right, right. um, the Good. storytelling itself was the fun part, you okay. know, the, the, the schedule and the 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 pace of it and the expectations mm-hmm. those were the those were my real um gargoyles that I was wrestling okay okay good i I'm glad to hear that yeah. I, because i I do know that when people there is a you know talking about the i'm gonna misquote but staring so much into the staring so long into the void that the void begins to stare back, and that can in certain aspects of this work, you know, creating that kind of stuff. I have to say, like, I'm, I'm a big horror freak. I'm a big, mm-hmm. uh, I, I love paranormal sort of mm-hmm. explorations. I love true crime. Um, but I don't like the show Criminal Minds. There's something about it that really, it's not even that it makes me uncomfortable. It's just like, it's, there is no hope. There's no, like, there's no resolution. It's constant, just mm-hmm. constant mm-hmm. sense of hopelessness. 
hey, it's a successful show, so there's a really an audience out there for it. But I wonder about the writers on that show. It's like, okay, we got to find another way to, huh. you know. Uh-huh. Well, Mindhunter has a lot of humor in it. Oh, yeah. I think, say, you know, I, it, was, it was so fun to work with those characters. It was really... You know, every every once in a while, I would kind of, you know, like I, similar to when I was first reading the book Mind Hunter, what happened at the end of that weekend, like every once in a while that would wash over me. But I think as humans, we have an incredible uh, grasp on the difference between reality and non-reality. I mean, you have people complaining about how violent the video games are that are out. But if you, you know, if those barriers weren't pretty firmly in place, why, why, why don't we have a, a ton of pedestrians getting mowed down by teenagers who've been playing Grand Theft Auto? We sure. just don't, they have, there's no proven correlation between, uh, I mean, there, I think there's correlation between uh, addictive video, game, video right. gaming and addictive, addictive behaviors and, 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 and fallout in families and emotional things because right. of that. But there's no data to connect a gaming with real non violence. Right. kill Video someone in the real world. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Although, I will say, and this will be an upcoming episode that I the hope you The recent you'll... story of the girl? Well, yeah. I mean, we're, gonna, we're, <laughs> we're actually going to be doing an episode on a condition called folie a deux, which is a shared delusion. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever between seen them... Between two people. Yeah, between two people. But if you... A great... I'm, I'm desperately sending out the vibes to the universe that Melanie Linsky will let me interview her. If you ever saw the, the Peter Jackson movie, Heavenly Creatures. I was just thinking, Heavenly Creatures. Yeah, it's, Those it's, two teenagers. And that's a true, built on a true story. Those women are still alive. And it is, you know, there is, once again, another example of a dominant and a pass, passive personality. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think that'd be the same with the the slim man? Slender man. Slender man. It's another example. Yeah, that's exactly how that happened. But like you said, there is no correlation. It didn't cause it. That it certainly helped it along. Getting on creepy pasta. Those kids should never have been allowed on that website unmonitored for that long. But you know, there was already there was already uh, pathology in place mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. then was you know fertilized and allowed to right. blossom. Because there are, however, many other kids that access that too and didn't just like anybody. yeah and still go on like okay i'm gonna watch my pretty pony now for a while yeah. instead it's my little pony yeah <laughs> my, pretty my pretty pony, pony. <laughs> kind of wrong. what are the bronies uh, i thought the bronies were all about my pretty oh, it's no, my, little, my pony. little pony yeah I, I apologize to the bronies <laughs> i respect you well and so just kind of wrapping up any other takeaways for you from just working on this project and um how do you think it affected you as a writer I learned so much as a writer. I feel like I got like I, I got like a master class. I mean, working with David, he's he's quite brilliant and he thinks on all kinds of levels that I don't know, he thinks in this kind of like multi-dimensional space, which is challenging if you're cuz he can have long conversations and 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 out of these long conversations where you can't stop listening for a second or you'll fall off the train of thought you know in there are the notes you need to apply to the the episode or the scenes or the characters um but they but applying those notes just gave the world such a great depth of 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 feeling and depth of perception and um his demands for like specificity in the dialogue were 
sometimes felt extreme, but then it comes out, you know, the position at which it comes out is... He knows you what he's doing. You can yeah. see it. You can wow, see it. what a great learning experience. It really was. And the other thing I really appreciated about the show is that, I mean, for example, in Hemlock Grove, I brought in, when I was first working on it, I brought in a scene that was six pages long. And the showrunner, Chick, he was like, this is lovely. This is a great scene. <laughs> it needs to be about two pages. It's three at beautiful. the most. You know, <laughs> two or three minute scenes is, is for the, on most TV shows is the max. And this one was the opposite. There were there were some interrogation scenes at first that had time cuts in them, and David would say, "Let's take out the time cuts. I want to see how we get from A to B." And explain and what a time cut is for the audience. So, for, so we're sitting in the the interrogation room with the with the incarcerated serial killer, and after about three to five minutes, uh, we do a time cut and come back, and now there's a sandwich in front of one of them. And so we've jumped ahead in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think we there still is some of that, but there were that was going on with several of the scenes and it was like let's take out the time cut and let's go from A to B, which is the which is the playwright's playground anyway, is to, you know, how long can you how long can you get these characters how long can you make these characters talk and where right. do the turns come organically in the conversation? And so to be able to do that in a TV show and then the rare times when I was able to um, take a break from writing and get to set, his the way he filmed those scenes was to film, if he had a 10-minute scene, he would film that 10-minute scene straight through over and over and oh, over wow. again. You know, change the cameras and Ooh. do it over and over and over again. I know the scene with uh, Richard Speck, mm-hmm. they worked on that. That was a two-day scene. They, they shot that over 24 hours. And they just did that scene straight through over and over again. That's harrowing. Which, for me, is like a theater exercise. Right. Um, Including throwing the bird into the fan. (laughs) Many birds. I think, no, I think there was a... uh, Yes, I think... (laughs) Many birds died in those two days. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, Um, Acme pets. (laughs) I need another gross of canaries, please. But to... Yeah, there was something. There was something so. There was something that really warmed my heart as a theater maker right. to see to see those kinds of that kind of attention and and longevity applied to uh, scenes in a TV show. Mm-hmm. So, Jen, tell us what's next for you. What are you working on? I'm working on a, a play. I've been trying to keep all my plays alive. Uh, I'm turning an older play about suburban teenagers addicted to an online horror video game. Oh. Turning that to a screenplay. Oh, uh, wow. That sounds... And, and we've got sirens in the background to accompany us. This is awesome. <laughs> hey, it's wow. Los Angeles. The crime gods are smiling on we'll us. We'll hear tonight. the helicopter in a second. Yeah. And then working on a TV idea for the nether. That's very exciting. That's very exciting. Well, once again, I encourage everyone to go to Samuel French website or um, uh, Amazon and download The Nether. It's a really wonderful play. It reads very quickly. And it's, it reads quickly, but I'm going to have to go back and read it several times because it's, it's yeah. intense. And if you 
like our podcast, I think you're going to like that play. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come speak with us. Thank you so much. This was great. Um, this and fun. I hope it's fun to talk about what we do and not just yes. always yeah. just do it. Exactly. <laughs> Even to revisit it all these years yes. later. <laughs> it was so great for me to have the show actually come out a year after I, I worked on it. I can't I even imagine. with bated breath. Great for us to watch it and then yeah. for you to create pieces of it and so see it. So we're going to awesome. drag you back kicking and screaming after your next project because I know it's, all, it's probably going to be related to something we do. Yes. So thanks again for Thank coming Thank you so in. much, Jen. Thank you. You guys, thanks for tuning in again um, and thanks for giving us a little bit of break over the, the holidays. We're going to catch up and um, we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.